News Talk 1110-993-WBT, hour number three. Welcome, the Pete Callender Show. I am Pete, and I want to welcome to the program now Ashish Agarwal. He was the uh, or is the advisor with the American Edge Project. And Ashish, welcome to the uh, program. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Sure. So, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what the American Edge Project is. Is it just like anti spheres? Is that the deal? Like you want edges everywhere? What's what is the project? <laughs> Well, the American Edge Project is a nonprofit designed to tell the story of American technology and how it's important to our economy, our national security, and our values. I'm a, a, an advisor to them on economic issues. I'm also an alumnus of uh, the Trump administration as well as the Bush administration. And so, uh, what is the so your primary focus is technological uh, businesses and, uh, I guess I'm thinking internet, but I guess all the high tech stuff, is that sort of like where you guys are all focused? That's exactly right. We're just trying to explain to people and the policymakers how important these technologies are to, you know, the future of our country, whether it's, uh, you know, the internet or quantum computing or artificial intelligence, uh, or, you know, advanced semiconductors. So I saw a quote from you from last year where you said, uh, For 40 years, antitrust law has rested on objective standards with broad bipartisan support. Many current antitrust proposals would abandon those standards in ways that would harm consumers, hamstring innovative upstarts, and needlessly damage the ability of American companies to compete with foreign rivals. So the question I had was, what are these antitrust proposals? I've been, I looked around the website and I, I, I guess they're just what so many of them they're they're not listed or are, are there some specific proposals that you're targeting? Well, th- th- there are lots of them. So, so first of all, you know, antitrust law has been a bipartisan success story over the last forty years, starting with you know, Robert Bork, great conservative icon, and he uh, you know came up with this view of antitrust that really needs to be grounded in economics and what is good for the consumer, not what's good for you know a particular competitor out there, but what is good for the consumer? What's going to help the consumer get, you know, lower prices and the best quality goods? So, and, and that, that's been great, uh, uh, implemented across administrations from, from, from Reagan through Obama and Trump. Now you have this very, uh, very progressive impulse to try to rewrite those laws in ways to focus on helping particular competitors. And the idea is that some companies are just, you know, so successful that they're hurting uh, smaller companies. But when you look at the actual facts on the ground, the actual data, what you see is a lot of these companies are providing you know, goods and services to, uh, you know, to people at, you know, at no monetary cost. And what these bills would do is to really upset that model. So is there any, is this an eye towards, uh, what, Section 230? Is there anything like that? Or is that a different issue altogether? Or is that more along the lines of like the, the free speech and freedom and democracy kind of uh, uh, dimension to the project? Yeah, so section 230 is a related issue. And that involves, uh, you know, c- concerns about uh, you know, free speech and whether there's, you know, viewpoint discrimination happening on the, hap- happening on the web. What the antitrust bills are about also, you know, very much aimed at big tech, are about limiting their ability to compete in the marketplace. So, you know, the one of the bills, the one that's out there the most right now, sponsored by Senator uh, Klobuchar from Minnesota, would require companies to share data 
with their competitors. So, in, including foreign competitors. So if you're, you know, a company that sells to cons- to American consumers, you would be required to share that data with your Chinese counterparts, and we think that's very problematic. Yeah. So you mentioned China. Uh, this is uh, uh, there was a, actually a, I was reading the other day there was uh, to, where is it in the Hill? Yeah, the Hill. Your colleagues at the American Edge Project. By the way, if folks want more information, they can go to americanedgeproject.org. Uh, but they talked about uh, America's technological edge. It's one of our nation's most important assets. Uh, but China particularly is determined to supplant us as, you know, the most uh, uh, prosperous country in the world. And they are clear-eyed, they write, about what it's going to take to achieve that goal. They said technological innovation has become the main battleground of the global playing field and competition for tech dominance will grow unprecedentedly fierce. Um, so do you think that American lawmakers recognize this as a threat or do they see it as just competition? I, I don't think that enough of our policymakers have made the link between our technology companies and, uh, you know, the, the, the race for you know, global technological supremacy. Look, the reality is that it is America's private sector that is funding by a ratio of like two or three to one you know, investments in, you know, next generation semiconductors and quantum computing and uh, artificial intelligence. The, 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 the Pentagon and the Department of Commerce and other parts of the you know, federal government do support, uh, you know, technological innovation, and that's great, but most of the funding comes from the private sector. And our concern is that if policymakers, you know, because they're mad at big tech for this or that, uh, start uh, you know, hammering their business models, that's going to make it harder for our private sector to continue to innovate and develop these new technologies. And I was not aware that China has a plan called the Made in China 2025 plan, which what is it with the... What is it with communists and their five-year plans? Anyway, uh, the Made in China in 2025, this is um, like this was, well, it's a 10-year plan. It was rolled out in 2015. But this is about, like you mentioned, quantum computing, 5G robotics, biotech. But their AI, they they want to be top of the heap in 2030. Um, why Why is AI that important and why would it take them that long to get there if they get, if they are able to supplant us in all these other areas first? Well, China is spending something on the order of $1.5 trillion with a T um, in you know, these technologies. They have this initiative called the, uh, called the 10,000 Little Giants, where they're uh, giving uh, you know, all these smaller tech companies you know, incentives and tax credits to, uh, to develop these tech. And they're also, quite frankly, engaged in uh, what you call forced technology transfers. So if you're an American company and you want to do business in China, you have to sign you know, an agreement where you're going to give you know, your technology to your, 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 your Chinese affiliate. And that's how they've been able to grow so much. So you know, why, why is all this you know, important? Why should it be troubling? Well, think about something like intri- encryption. So with advanced generation AI or quantum computing, it is entirely possible over the next few years that all of the encryptions that you know, we have today to secure your phone and mine and you know, the Pentagon computers could all be made obsolete if uh, you know, the Chinese are, are able to you know, develop these technologies before us. One of the things I had heard years ago, I, and I don't know if it's true, maybe you've heard it or can debunk it, but uh, that China wasn't necessarily great at innovating things, at, at creating things, but they were really, really good 
at copying. They could make a replica of something that somebody in, in another country made, America made, um, and they could make a perfect replica of it. Even if the original was was like made incorrectly or something, they would replicate the the mistake. Is, is there any truth to that, or is is that just uh, a wives' tale or whatever? Or is that uh, uh, is that sort of indicative though of the way their economy does run? I, I think it is indicative of the way that our economy does run. And you know, as we just talked about, they have been engaged in you know, quite frankly just industrial espionage. Yeah on a scale unprecedented in human history. Uh, you know, some estimates are that, the, you know, the, the value of that has been t- to the tunes of tens of billions of dollars annually transferred from the United States to China. But it's not just that. I, you, have, you have to give, uh, you have to give the, the, the Chinese government credit. They are doing a lot of investment in, you know, pure research uh, themselves. And, uh, you know, they're in the game, and they recognize, uh, they recognize where the future is headed. Ashish Agarwal, I appreciate you making time for us. He's with the American Edge Project, and you can learn more about uh, that project and the work that they do by going to their website, which is uh, AmericanEdgeProject.org. Thanks so much for your time. Great talking with you. Thanks, Pete. Likewise. All right. Take care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Thanks again to Ashish Agarwal from American Edge Project. His colleagues, uh, Michael, so part of the, uh, the, the group that uh, is leading this organization, Michael Morell, former acting director and deputy director of the CIA. Joseph Dunford, a retired four-star Marine Corps general, uh, former Joint Chiefs. Um, to, to, to Francis Townsend. Third U.S. Homeland Security Advisor from 04 to 08. Uh, they're on the National Security Advisory Board co-chairs for the American Edge Project. Um, they wrote a, an op-ed at thehill.com a couple of days ago. And some of the warnings that they're issuing here about the technological race. Uh, for example, uh, America has fallen behind China in 5G deployment and commercial drone development. Although we remain the world leader in AI research and development, China has made significant strides and threatens to overtake us in the years to come. They say, make no mistakes, we're in a high-stakes global leadership contest with China and Russia. Um, They talk about also news outlet reports Uh, that China's tech giants are helping Russia bypass sanctions by stepping in to support Russia's wireless and 5G efforts after Western companies left. Um, I did not want to put Mr. Agarwal on the spot, but uh, I kind of, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he probably would have agreed with me, but commies lie, okay? Communists lie. You cannot trust commies. That's basically my guiding principle on China. And and to a lesser degree, Russia, but they're not supposedly real communism anymore, as if it was ever really tried um, <laughs> in, in the Soviet Union. Uh, but they're more of like a thugocracy now, right? They're, it is. I mean, it, it's just, it's like a gangster kind of uh, government. Not that communism is really that so far removed from the current iteration of the thugocracy, but 
you know, China, communist. Right there in the name, communist China. They got the colors. They got the imagery. All of it still on board with the communism. And that's my take on communism is you can't trust them. They will lie to you. They lie about everything. They lie about their philosophy. Their whole philosophy is built on lies. And, and stealing. Yes, absolutely. And stealing. Right. The whole, the whole idea of value is that's a capitalist idea. And then they base everything like, oh, well, you got the value of the work being provided. Oh, really? How you determine that? Hmm? Hmm? Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me just move on here. Oh, it's, that's China. This is related to China. Did you see Top Gun? I did not. Well, the original movie, yes. Not, not the relaunch or the, the update. What's it called here? Uh, Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun colon Maverick. Oh, well, that sounds, that sounds not like a movie I want to see. Anyway, Tom Cruise is not simply taking on what appears to be Russian-made fighter jets in his update to the 1986 classic Top Gun. He's also also angering China, which I'm okay with, being communists and all. I'm okay with angering the commies. That, that used to be a source of unified American pride. What happened to us? We beat Drago in that boxing match. And then, like what? Everybody just said, oh, well, we defeated the commies, and so that was it? The sequel, <laughs> it's from Rocky, never mind. The sequel, Top Gun Maverick, features Tom Cruise's character wearing a bomber jacket. Do you know what's on the bomber jacket? Do you look for what's on the bomber jacket in these types of situations? I have to admit, I am not the kind of person that looks at bomber jackets in fighter jet movies, in order to find the Taiwanese flag. But it's apparently there. It's on It's on his bomber jacket. I don't know why it would be on. He's not Taiwanese. I mean, I don't believe he's Taiwanese. I don't know that to be. Uh, uh, the character, I don't think the character in the movie is not Taiwanese. Is he? I don't think so. I don't remember that from the first movie. Ooh, maybe there's a spoiler alert. Maybe there's a spoiler. Maybe he is from Taiwan. Or he just has a lot of different countries' flags on his jacket for some reason. I guess everywhere he has flown, he gets a uh, he gets a flag embroidered onto the jacket. And Taiwan is one of them. And that's a big no-no for the China comms. They do not like that. Because it's kind of sort of seen as an indication that Taiwan might be just a smidge independent from uh, from China. And they don't like that because they think Taiwan belongs to them. They view the island as part of its territory. The government of President Tsai Ing-wen asserts Taiwan is already a de facto independent nation in need of wider international recognition. The flag was either missing or could not be seen properly in a trailer for the film back in 2019, which prompted some to wonder whether it had been removed in order to satisfy demands from China's censors. Bloomberg News reporting that Hollywood has a long tradition of bowing to pressure from Chinese censors, removing images and dialogue from scenes that might be considered offensive. But this decision could be signs of a pushback from Hollywood. But it's Hollywood. There are a lot of commies in Hollywood, and see previous note about not trusting them. Yeah. 
All right, I've got a bunch of emails and messages, or massages, if you prefer. Um, which who doesn't prefer massages, really? Anyway, old Grouch's military surplus writing uh, on the Twitter, what is Ray Cooper rambling about? A permit loophole with assault weapons? Does he want to expand the racist pistol purchase permit laws to long guns? All right, so a couple of things to just clarify. Number one, we call Ray Cooper, we call Governor Roy Cooper, Ray Cooper. I've been doing this for years. Look, I am just following the lead of Hillary Clinton. She said her good friend Ray Cooper, when she came to town, she came to North Carolina to help old Ray win. She told me that that's her old friend and Ray Cooper. I don't know why he goes by Roy. So I've been calling him Ray Cooper for years. Look, I was the original adopter of the pronouns of choice, right? Like, this is what, obviously, he told her Ray. Unless, of course, you're saying that they're not really good friends. That's not possible. No. So that's the first thing to explain why we call him Ray Cooper. Um, but Governor Cooper's speech about the gun control, he's getting a bit grabby for the guns in the wake of, and this is, by the way, like for folks on the left who are listening, I just want to be very clear about this. For folks on the right, when, and whenever there is one of these shootings occur, I'm not sure you guys are aware of this, but I'm going to let you know, let you, let you in on a secret. It looks like you're standing on the bodies of dead children or dead victims of any mass shooting, like after the Pulse nightclub, in order to advance your your, your preferred policy agenda. Like we, we on the right and even, you know, just Second Amendment defenders, even those on the left who defend the Second Amendment. Um, though, as I'm saying that, is that really, are there any people that do that? All right, well, just assume. People who are fans of the Second Amendment generally recognize that your efforts at gun control are meant to confiscate. It's just a long-term plan. And so when you make these types of pitches in the aftermath of a mass shooting, we recognize what you're doing. You are using emotionalism in order to make an argument that you otherwise cannot win with logic. I'm not sure you guys are aware you do that. Did you know you do that? Like on everything, on everything. But it's kind of ghoulish. It really is. It's ghoulish. It's disgusting. I mean, to me, it's disgusting. Because you can have these debates. Earlier today, there was a fellow, Tyler, who called in. And uh, he, he suggested, hey, how about we raise the age to purchase? Uh, and he said, we'll start with the semi-automatic rifles, you know, AR-15s and such. We'll start with these, raise the age to 21. And he approached it from a policy standpoint. And as I have said repeatedly over the years, uh, I am willing to engage with people at the level with which they engage me, which, you know, Tyler comes in and he says, here's a policy idea. What do you think of the policy idea? Well, we could test it. I can ask you some questions and we can discuss it. And have you thought about this angle or that angle? And I can have a policy discussion with somebody we did earlier today. I'm not sure I agree with it. I would want to see a proposal fleshed out. I, you know, Maybe this is something he's going to pursue. He says he's starting to kind of do the research on it. And that's that's good. That's what I 
And honestly, I would prefer to engage in the policy level debate. But if you're going to come with the stupidity of the Charlotte Observer editorial board, like that level of stupidity, if you're going to come at me with that, then, okay, I'm your Huckleberry for that, too. I will engage with you as a troll. If you are going to approach me in a dishonest fashion, I'm going to approach you in a dishonest fashion. You know, if you're going to ask me, you are talking earlier, like, why uh, are you a Klansman? I'm going to say, are you an idiot? Like, that's the... That's the way in which I engage with people who uh, who obviously are intent on getting that kind of discussion with me. I can do that. So what is this uh, going back to the tweet here from old grouches? He says, what's uh, what is he rambling about a permit loophole with assault weapons? Uh, And so Cooper's I have it here. Hang on. Uh, Yeah. He says state legislators should close North Carolina's permit loophole for these weapons. Talking about an assault weapons ban. An assault weapons ban. Which, by the way, I've got another piece here. It's an, it's an old piece, an elderly one, if you will, um, written several years ago at the Washington Post by Leah Labresco, who is a data journalist at 538, or was. And uh, she wrote a piece I used to think gun control was the answer. My research told me otherwise. So I I will get back to that on this quote unquote. Well, I'll say it now. Here we go. Assault weapon. She says it's an invented classification that includes any semi-automatic that has two or more features, such as a bayonet mount, a rocket propelled grenade launcher mount, a folding stock, a pistol grip. That's it. You just need two or more features. But guns are modular. So any hobbyist can easily add these features at home. And that's actually why the AR-15 is so popular. It's like a Barbie doll for gun collectors. You get to change its outfits like in any way you want. It's really, really customizable. Uh, I, I don't have an AR-15, or do I? I just lost it over the weekend if, if I'm Canadian. Anyway. Uh, so Cooper, I think, when he says we have to uh, close the permit loophole for these weapons, uh, I do believe that's what he's talking about. I think he wants to expand the pistol purchase permit laws to long guns. I think that's what he is talking. He doesn't elaborate. And once again, because he's a Democrat, media can't figure out his motives. You know, it's just ah, just smoke. You can't see it. So I'm thinking that's what it is. I think Old Grouch is exactly right. Um, I got a, uh, another message here from the Hellion uh, who says, Pete, come on now. Everybody knows that Ray is short for Roy here in the South. <laughs> I did not know that. Ray, short for Roy. It's a nickname, if you will, which makes sense. I don't know why. It was, it was so obvious, it plum evaded me. What else here? I had an email. Oh, out of, uh, from Ivalde. From Jay, he says, is it true that a door was jammed open? Apparently a door was jammed open so a teacher could retrieve a cell phone. True security is a pain in the butt and has tragic consequences sometimes. Hard lesson to learn this way. Love the show. Uh, that is true. The door was propped open. And that was not the only... Uh, mistake that was made. There was a good write-up at the Washington Times by Valerie Richardson. An open back door. 
a missed gunman, a scramble for equipment, an elusive key, and a baffling decision. A series of critical mistakes and unlucky breaks. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. The Evaldi Consolidated Independent School District in Texas had implemented extensive security measures, including threat assessment teams, security staff, partnerships with local law enforcement, perimeter fencing, and a locked classroom door policy. None of that stopped the 18-year-old gunman from shooting and killing 19 children and two teachers in a fourth-grade classroom at Robb Elementary School, where nearly everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Valerie Richardson's piece at, at the Washington Times from yesterday does a bit of a TikTok here at 11.27 a.m. An unidentified teacher propped open the back door with a rock. Minutes later, the gunman crashed his grandmother's truck into an adjacent drainage ditch, then walked to the school carrying a rifle and a backpack of ammo. He shot, toward, and I think I mentioned earlier about the body armor on one of the phone calls, and I got an email that, that turned out not to be true. He's just wearing a vest. I had heard also that he didn't have the plates, so now they're saying he just wasn't even, he was just wearing a vest? Okay. Um, but I, look, I caution against, like, the, the facts, as we think we know them in the immediate aftermath of these events, they always change. It's why I always caution people, just wait, right? Be patient. The, the investigation will yield certain results. We will get reporting. And we'll be able to put together a better understanding of what occurred rather than racing. Fo- but this is one of the other things that the left traffics in as well. They take full advantage of this in that by racing ahead and, you know, making it a story about gun control means they don't have to waste any time waiting for the actual facts to emerge. And then they're never called out for the lies that they tell in advancing that agenda when they say, oh, you know, if we had just done this, then this wouldn't have happened. And then it turns out, well, no, that actually would not have prevented it. They they never get called out. There's never any accountability for that. Anyway, back to the Washington Dimes story. Um, 1127, teacher opens the back door, props it open with the rock. One minute later, gunman crashes the truck into the ditch. Um, he then gets out of the truck. He shoots towards two employees outside of a funeral home across the street, but he missed them. He then climbs the perimeter fence and starts shooting at the school building. The teacher ran back inside to retrieve a cell phone. I'm almost wondering if the teacher stepped out to smoke a cigarette right there. Teacher goes inside to retrieve a cell phone, apparently to call 911, and reemerged from the back door but did not shut it. This according to the Texas Department of Public Safety Director Stephen McCraw. That was the first mistake. Then came the bad luck. The Evalde Consolidated Independent School District has six school resource officers for nine schools, but none of them was at this school at the time. I am unclear as to how the teacher exited the building, left the door propped open with their cell phone in tow, had gone back in. So I assume the teacher walked outside, propped the door open, was smoking a cigarette, heard gunshots, ran back inside, got the cell phone, then came back out. Didn't pass the gunman? Didn't kick the rock out of the door? 
But look, I understand. And it, when stuff like that happens, you go back to the last level of training. And, you know, if you have no training or this wasn't in whatever active shooter drill that you you did, then, you know, your mind starts your mind starts racing and you people you don't think straight. I get it. Um, at 1131, so four minutes after, uh, the teacher initially props the door open. One officer uh, comes speeding over in his car. He drives right past the gunman who was crouched behind a vehicle. The officer approached the teacher instead. Two minutes after that, at 1133, the shooter slipped into the school through the still ajar back door. He then made his way to rooms 111 and 112, a pair of joined classrooms. Even if the door was not propped open, the Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said that the gunman may have been able to get inside. Why? Quote, that door, when it was finally shut, it did not automatically lock. We put in funding for schools to do that. This was a different kind of lock that had to be activated, apparently. So immediately after entering, uh, the gunman fired off hundreds of rounds in the classrooms. Three police officers arrived at 1135. 1135 is two minutes after the shooter makes it into the building. Um, Police officers arrive, they head to the classroom, but the gunman opens fire, hits two of them, so they fall back. Seven officers were soon in the school hallway when they were hamstrung by inadequate equipment and the tactical advantage of the shooter who had locked the classroom door. They say it was a steel door, it was locked, and it would go outwards, not inwards, into into the class, which means they need what they call a can to pry it open. We didn't have those kinds of tools, they said. The police tracked down a game warden who had a crowbar and a hammer before obtaining the keys to the classroom from the school janitor. Patricia Chapa, whose brother is a police officer at Uvalde and whose sister teaches at the school, insisted that the officers did not retreat but were held at bay by the gunmen, quote, they did not retreat until the shooter was down. They were in there the entire time. But the biggest blunder, instead of rushing the attacker, the incident commander reclassified the gunman from active shooter to barricaded subject and opted to wait for backup from the Border Patrol. That decision flies in the face of the widely accepted police protocol adopted after Columbine, which is to run towards the gunfire instead of waiting for SWAT. After the early barrage of gunfire, the shots were only intermittent and apparently directed at deterring the officers, leading to the conclusion that the gunman was the only one still alive in the classroom. But that turned out not to be true either. Starting at 12.03, 911 operators started receiving calls from within the classrooms from at least two students saying that seven to eight kids had survived. That was at 12.03. At 12.15, the Border Patrol Tactical Unit arrived. A seven-officer team used keys to open the door, breached the classroom, killed the gunman at 12.50. Texas has invested $100 million in hardening schools since the Santa Fe shooting, but the Evaldi massacre shows that best practices, such as having only one open entrance into a school, haven't always been followed. Um, one of the other things, Ben Shapiro wrote this years ago. Uh, always keep in mind that mass shootings 
the evidence for gun control is always strongest on mass shootings. There is little correlative evidence between gun homicide and gun ownership. The states in America with high ownership rates evidence no elevated level of homicide compared with those with lower rates of gun ownership. But the evidence of mass shootings and gun availability is better because the sample size is so small. Brett Winnable's up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.